So we're continuing our Advent series, Three-Dimensional Jesus, where we are looking at the incarnation of Jesus, what uh, John means when he says in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What was it like for Jesus to be a human being just like us? What was it like for Jesus to be a teenager? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus was a teenager. His body was changing. His voice squeaked. He went through puberty. Have you ever considered that Jesus went through that awkward phrase of life that we call puberty? What was Jesus like during puberty? Well, as we saw last week, we know this much, he didn't sin. I mean, imagine that. Imagine a teenager who doesn't sin. It's hard to wrap our minds around that idea. Because, you know what, I was a moody teenager, right? Jesus wasn't a moody teenager. Wow. What we do know about Jesus as an awkward preteen slash teenager is that the favor of God was upon his life. And that's why he came, to share God's favor with us, to share God's welcome with us, to share God's hug, if you will, with people like us, people who are moody, whether we are a teenager or not. God welcomes moody sinners. Why? Precisely because his son was not a moody sinner. So what does Jesus do with the favor of God that was on his life? It's the reason he came. He shares that favor with us. Because God's favor rested on his son Jesus, if you were trusting in Christ, then God's favor and welcome and acceptance and delight and smile and affection rest on you. So enjoy it, y'all. That's what Christmas is about. God's favor and God's welcome and God's delight and God's acceptance and God's smile and God's affection rests on you, Christians, so just enjoy it. Why are you fighting it? That's why Jesus came, as he himself said in Luke 4, quoting the prophet Isaiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus came and lived a perfect life, and the favor of God was upon him. He came to proclaim that God's favor was free to anyone, no matter what you've done, to anyone who would believe in him. And so the good news is that if you are trusting in Christ alone, not your own goodness, his goodness, the good news is that if you are trusting in Christ alone, then you live forever in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of God. All because of Jesus. Because Jesus wore diapers. Because Jesus went through puberty. But what was it like for Jesus to become a human being just like I mean, what did that look like? Well, when you picture Jesus, please don't picture Jesus as a toddler 
sucking on a pacifier, and beating you at Bible trivia, okay? Don't picture Jesus completing all of the Awana books by age six. Instead, picture Jesus growing in wisdom, growing in understanding. Picture Jesus learning truths from the Old Testament as he grew up. Do not picture him earning a PhD in the Old Testament when he's eight years old. Picture the human nature of Jesus learning and growing, but picture also that same human nature united to his divine nature, which knows all things. That's biblical Christology. Christology is that Jesus knows all things as God, but Jesus was limited in his understanding and wisdom as a human being, and those two natures are united in one person. As Athanasius, one of the early church fathers in the 4th century said, on the one hand, with men and as man, he does not know. But on the other hand, divinely being in the Father as word and wisdom, he knows and there is nothing which he does not know. That is biblical Christology. In the incarnation, Jesus was limited in knowledge in his human nature while being omniscient and knowing all things in his divine nature. He knew everything, but he didn't know everything. Let that picture hurt your brain and then cause you to worship. Jesus knew everything as God, but he had to learn many, many things as a human being. He had to learn how to ride a bike. So as we look at God's word today, and as you think about that, and perhaps get a migraine... I want you also to marvel at the humility of Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Let's marvel at the humility expressed by a teenage boy whose body was going through puberty and whose face was most likely covered with a few pimples. Now, you probably think that an awkward teenager going through puberty with acne won't cause you to worship. But let me tell you this. Youth group Jesus? Have you ever pictured Jesus in the youth group? What was that like? Youth group Jesus, as an awkward teenager, can cause you to fall down in worship and adoration. So let's look at God's word so that we will be humbled anew, so that we will worship the Son of God anew. Luke chapter 2. Luke tells us in the gospel what happened after that first Christmas morning. I mean, what do you do after you give birth to the eternal Son of God? You go back home. That's what you do, and you just live your life. So Luke chapter 2. Look at verse 39. Hear the word of the Lord. And when they, Mary and Joseph, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, that's Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So we're picking up Luke's narrative after the birth of Jesus, after his parents uh, take him to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. And Joseph and Mary return to their hometown of Nazareth. And Luke tells us about the first 12 years of Jesus' life with these words. He says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And that's all that Luke gives us concerning the first 12 years of Jesus' life. That's it. We don't know anything about Jesus getting f fussy and wanting to nurse his mommy. 
We don't know anything about Jesus running around shirtless and in diapers with a pacifier hanging out of the side of his mouth. Every parent has experienced that, right? In the summer, your kid's just wearing a diaper, pacifier, and they're just running around. We don't know anything about that. We don't know if Jesus had a favorite book that he left his parents to read to him when he went to bed. Or if he had a favorite toy that he played with. We don't know if Jesus had a little binky, his favorite little blanket that he liked to snuggle up with. We simply don't know what he was like from birth to age 12. All that Luke tells us is that he grew, got stronger, was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was upon him. In fact, this section in Luke 2 is the only incident that we have of Jesus' childhood. But it's far from boring. The only story we have of Jesus from his childhood involves a giant church celebration that involved lots of food and music, and it almost ended with his parents filing a missing persons report. The only incident we have of Jesus' childhood was the time he went missing and he almost ended up having his picture put on a milk carton. All because he was playing Bible trivia with some seminary professors. So back to Luke chapter 2. Look at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So when Jesus is 12 years old, he travels with his family to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. We don't have any details about where they stayed, what they did. The only info that we get is what happened after the celebration. Jesus' family apparently traveled with uh, friends and family in kind of this one great big horde. And after the celebration, Mary and Joseph assume that Jesus is somewhere in the group, probably playing with his cousins, probably playing with John the Baptist. It's kind of like what happens when we have a function here at Grace, right? We're all in the gym, we're eating and talking, our kids are out on the playground. We just assume that they're safe out there, don't we? Apparently, they write their names at the top of the equipment, and there's genealogies up there, right? You wonder what they're doing while we're in the gym talking? They're out there graffitiing the church playground equipment. We're okay with that. I got up there like a few weeks ago and looked at it. I was like, oh, this is what you guys were doing. Well, that's what it was like with Joseph and Mary. They just assumed that Jesus is with his cousins. But they don't discover that Jesus is missing until they have traveled one day's journey away from Jerusalem, going back up north. And then it takes them three more days to find him. 
So at this point, Jesus has been missing for five days. One day's journey out, one day's journey back, and then three days scouring the streets of Jerusalem, looking in the malls and all the skate parks. This is a parent's worst nightmare, isn't it? Maybe Joseph and Mary went to the temple to pray and to ask the Lord to help them find their boy. Or maybe they thought Jesus might be there. We don't know. But we do know that they found him. And when they found him, he was having some theological Q&A with some of the leading seminary professors of the day. I mean, no big deal. Okay, look at verse 46 again. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Listen, if your kid goes missing, isn't this how you want to find him? Wouldn't you want to find them at church talking theology with the pastors? Wouldn't you be proud to hear the pastor say, I was just talking with your son. He knows a lot about the impassibility of God. And he knows the difference between superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. You can go look those up, I dare you. But is that how Jesus' parents react? No. Look at verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The reality is that Mary and Joseph reacted the way parents should react in this situation. They weren't impressed with Jesus' Bible knowledge at this point. Now, later in verse 51, Mary treasured this moment in her heart. Later, Mary would recollect that Jesus, as a 12-year-old, was engaging in theological discussions with some of the top seminary professors of the day. But at this point, Mary and Joseph just wanted to know that their little boy was okay, that he's alive. Luke tells us in verse 48 that they were astonished. I don't think Joseph and Mary were astonished at his knowledge and his interaction with the teachers of the law. I think that they were astonished that he was alive after five days. The teachers were amazed at his understanding and the kinds of questions Jesus asked. But his parents were astonished that after going missing for five days, he was alive. Listen, if your kid was missing for five days and you found them talking with the pastors, you'd think like, wow, he knows the outline of the book of Leviticus. No, you'd be thinking, my son's alive. That's what is astonishing in that moment. Not how much Bible your child knows. In fact, they had been in great distress, Mary says in verse 48. And how does the pimple-faced Son of God respond? Look at verse 49. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Think about this. This is the very first recorded sentence that we have of Jesus in the Bible. And what Jesus says gives us a clue as to what dominated his heart at age 12. He says, here I, I'm here at my father's house to learn more from the scriptures so that I can be prepared to fulfill my father's mission. It's amazing. It's remarkable. Joseph and Mary did not grasp how remarkable Jesus' response was, but Jesus did. It is clear then that the preteen, pimple-faced Jesus knew that his true father was not Joseph, but his father in heaven. At this point in his life, Jesus knew that he was on a mission to do what his father had sent him to do. 
Here in the temple, what seems like a simple Bible trivia game is actually part of what is preparing Jesus to go to the cross to suffer and die. These conversations with the teachers of the law were part of Jesus growing in wisdom, part of Jesus growing in his understanding. These conversations in the temple should astonish us just like it did the teachers of the law. Notice too that Jesus was listening to them. I love that. He was listening to these men. He was absorbing their knowledge. He was asking questions. He was learning. He was growing. He was understanding the Hebrew scriptures and making connections as he sat and listened and took sermon notes or sermon doodles like Michael Shaw. And the teachers of the law were amazed that this 12-year-old boy knew all that he knew. So in order to be able to picture Jesus increasing in wisdom, we need to ask ourselves a question. What accounted for the remarkable questions and answers that Jesus came up with in the temple? How did he have so much wisdom and insight at age 12 that the teachers of the law were astonished and impressed? Well, the typical evangelical response would probably be that because Jesus was God, that he knew all the answers. We may be tempted to say that the God part of Jesus, his divine nature, supplied his human nature, his brain, with the answers. We may be tempted to think that his divine nature enabled his human nature to dominate Bible trivia. But is that what Luke wants us to believe? I don't think so. Scripture often puts the emphasis on the humanity of Jesus in his day-to-day activities. Luke wants us to see that Jesus grew as a human being. Luke wants us to see that Jesus, like all human beings, grows and increases in knowledge and wisdom as time goes by. That's why Luke gives us the two bookends of this temple story. Verse 40, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Then verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Verses 40 and 52 speak of Jesus becoming strong and increasing in stature. Luke is not saying that the divine nature of Jesus grew. Luke is saying that Jesus was growing up in his body, growing up in his mind, his understanding. Luke is saying that Jesus was a growing boy. Luke is telling us that Jesus is a preteen slash teenager here. That means that Jesus ate like a normal teenager. Have you ever thought about that? That means Jesus would eat a pizza for dinner and then two hours later be hungry enough to eat a whole bag of Doritos and then two hours later eat a big bowl of cereal before he went to bed. This means that Perhaps 12-year-old Jesus started growing armpit hair and maybe his voice started to change and maybe he had a peach fuzz mustache coming in and maybe he had a little pimple sticking out between some of that peach fuzz mustache. Luke's point here is that Jesus was growing and maturing and increasing in knowledge as he was growing stronger physically as a young boy. Luke is not saying that Jesus was increasing and growing in his divine nature because Jesus was fully God. He is fully God. His knowledge as God was complete. He lacked nothing. He was the omniscient God-man who knew all things, and yet he was growing in knowledge as a young boy, as a human being. 
He was omniscient as the God-man. He knew everything as God, and yet he was growing in knowledge as a young boy, as a human being. So understand this. Jesus' divine nature as God did not enable him to know everything in his human nature. It wasn't like you could kind of shake Jesus like a snow globe, and then maybe part of his divine nature would spill over into his human nature and give him this knowledge and wisdom. No, both of his natures are united. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Those two natures are united together in one person. They're not mixed together. They're not confused. They're not to be divided. They are united. Is it a mystery? Absolutely. Is there anything in creation that I can point to and say, that's like the God-man? No, there's not. It's a mystery. Two natures united together in one person. As a 12-year-old boy, Jesus was omniscient and knew all things, and yet at the same time, he was growing and increasing in wisdom. He had to learn biblical truths as he grew up. His divine nature as God did not supply him with knowledge or make up for his lack of wisdom. He had to learn and grow. And I think in the temple that day, Jesus wasn't debating or trying to school the teachers of the law. He wasn't trying to beat them at Bible trivia. He was there to learn. He was there to grow in his understanding, to get wisdom. And the teachers were impressed with his questions, impressed with his answers. And one reason Jesus did grow was because he had God's favor. Luke tells us in verse 40 and 52, the favor of God was upon him He increased in favor with God and man. God was pleased with his preteen son. Therefore, the picture we have of 12-year-old Jesus in the temple talking with the teachers of the law is one of a boy filled with the wisdom provided by the Holy Spirit and with wisdom that came through years of catechism and reading Scripture, memorizing Scripture, hearing Scripture taught in the synagogue, and meditating upon the Word of God. It was as his parents catechized him with the New Jerusalem catechism, perhaps. And as they talked with Jesus about God's word, and as he read and studied and memorized and meditated upon God's word, he began to grow in wisdom. And because the spirit was at work in Jesus' heart and mind, illumining the scriptures, then it stands to reason that at some point in time it dawned on Jesus that the Old Testament spoke of him. Think about that. At some point, the dots begin to connect and the lights go off. And Jesus, however old he is, realizes these passages are about me. Let this blow your mind. There must have been a day, a specific time, when the Holy Spirit illumined Jesus' mind and he understood that he was the Messiah. Think about that. At some point as Jesus is reading Isaiah 53, which speaks of the suffering servant, it dawns on Jesus in his human nature as the Spirit illumines his mind that he is the one that Isaiah is talking about. As he reads Psalm 22, at some point, Jesus understands that the person in Psalm 22 is speaking about his suffering on the cross. So maybe the real question is not, Mary, did you know? But Jesus, did you know that you would walk on water? And to that, Jesus would reply, as God I knew, but as a human being, I had to learn that truth. That's the real question. It's not, Mary, did you know? The real question is, Jesus, did you know? And he would say, at some point, I began to know and to understand. 
Listen, if 12-year-old Jesus knew he could walk on water and he went to Hume Lake in the summer, what do you think 12-year-old Jesus is going to do? He's going to walk on water, isn't he? He's like, hey, guys, hold my juice box and walk on water. I don't know when he realized he could walk on water. Jesus had to learn things. He had to grow in his understanding of his mission. And at least by age 12, he appeared to know much of it. Or at least he knew that he should be in the temple learning from these seminary professors, these teachers of the law. So as Jesus grew up, the Spirit illumined his mind and he began to understand from the Old Testament scriptures that he would be rejected and that he would suffer unimaginable pain and agony through crucifixion as he bore the weight of the sins of the world. I mean, imagine Jesus coming to grips with this at age 12, realizing that he will go and and bear the wrath of God for the sin of mankind. Was it age 20? We don't know, but at some point the reality of that just kind of sits in that I am going to die a brutal death for the sins of my brothers and sisters, my mom and dad, for my cousin John the Baptist. How amazing. Jesus was just like us, except he never sinned. Otherwise, he was just like us. In his humanity, He had to learn and grow. He had to rely on the Holy Spirit to illumine his mind. As he heard the Old Testament preached in the synagogue, the Holy Spirit gave Jesus insight and understanding into the meaning of those texts. Perhaps this is why Jesus didn't start his public ministry until he was 30 years old. He spends 30 years studying the scriptures and coming to grips with what he must do. 30 years. And then three years later in the Garden of Gethsemane, what? If there's any other way. I've known this for a while. But Father, is there any other way? Do I have to go to the cross? Now in his divine nature as God, Jesus knew he had to go to the cross. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see his human nature. He's appealing from his human nature as man to his Father in heaven and saying, is there any other way? I've known for a long time. Maybe at age 12 he figured out, maybe age 15. But he's known for, Father, I've known for a while. 20 years maybe, 18 years, but is there any other way? Bruce Ware says, for three decades the Spirit worked within Jesus, instructing him, bringing him yet greater and greater insight until finally the day came when he was ready to face the devil, the Pharisees, the demons, and his disciples, all with the word of God deeply enmeshed in his soul. And because Jesus had the word of God deeply enmeshed in his soul, he knew that his mission was to come and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That means that Jesus came to proclaim to you that God's favor, welcome, delight, acceptance, smile, and affection rest on you. Enjoy it, y'all. If you trust in Jesus, this can be true of you. You will live forever in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of God. Scotty Smith says, The gospel puts an end to the spiritual equivalent of the daisy game. He loves me, he loves me not. We live in the perpetual favor of God. Listen, God does not love you, Christian, to the degree that you are like Jesus. 
He doesn't love you to the degree that you're like Christ. Are you holy enough? Are you reading the Bible enough? Do you serve enough? Do you give enough? He doesn't love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ, to the degree that you are united to his son by faith. And if you are, then he loves you unconditionally. Jesus came because we are not like him. He came because we do not love God as we should. He came to give us God's favor, to give us God's eternal hug, if you will. And that means that God's feelings and affection for you, Christian, are unchanging. They're immutable. God's feelings for you, Christian, are immutable. They're unchanging. If you are in Christ, God's favor rests upon you fully and permanently. And get this, there's nothing you can do about it, okay? There's nothing you can do about God's favor resting upon you as a Christian. You can sin and really mess up your life. You can deal with major consequences. You could end up in jail, prison. You could end up dead. But if you're trusting in Christ, His favor never leaves you. There's nothing you can do about His favor resting upon you, Christian. If you're trusting in Christ, it is on you. You can kick, you can squiggle, you can squirm. Not going to change You can try to sin your way out of it. You can't sin your way out of it. You can mess your life up if you sin. Please hear me say that. But you cannot get out of God's favor. It's all because Jesus obeyed the law for us. It's all because Jesus obeyed his parents when they found him at the temple. Think about that. The reason you are righteous in Christ, Christian, is because Jesus didn't cop an attitude with his parents at the temple that day. The reason you are covered with the righteousness. You've been imputed with the righteousness. The perfect, sinless life of Jesus is because he submitted to his parents that day in the temple. So what happened after Mary and Joseph found Jesus in the temple? Look again at verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Mary and Joseph understood their role as parents in leading Jesus, raising him, teaching him, catechizing him, discipling him. That day at the temple, there was no, well, what do you want to do, Jesus? I mean, you're the Messiah. Do you want to stay here and live in the temple? No, that didn't happen. You know what they said? They said, get in the car, son. We're going home to Nazareth. You have chores to do. And Jesus did. His parents, he he didn't give his parents any grief. He obeyed them without any grief, without any attitude, without any grumbling or complaining. Marvel at the humility of Jesus as he submits to his parents. At this point in his life, Jesus knows who his real father is, his heavenly father. He knew his identity as the son of God, and yet he would choose to put himself under their authority. Technically speaking, Jesus created his mom and dad, right? He made them. He's their creator. At some point, it dawned on him as he's reading scripture, I created my mom and dad. And yet he humbles himself and he submits to their authority. Why? Because he loved God. 
Why? Because he loved God's word, the Old Testament. He knew that God's word called for children to obey their parents and honor their mothers and their fathers. He obeyed his parents so that you could be forgiven. He obeyed his mom and dad so that you could be forgiven of all the times you didn't obey your mom and dad when you were a teenager. Or all the times, teenagers, that you're not obeying your mom and dad right now. Or younger kids and preteens, all the times that you will not obey your mom and dad in the future. You are forgiven because Jesus always obeyed his mom and dad. And so a quick word to the kids and the teenagers here, the students. Look to Jesus. See what humility he shows when he submits to and he honors his mom and dad. Kids, you need to underline, you need to circle, you need to highlight. Maybe don't get a tattoo yet, but Luke 2.51, you need to underline it, circle it, highlight it, put it on a t-shirt, write it on a piece of paper, post-it note, stick it on your bathroom mirror. Put it as like the wallpaper or the lock screen on your iPhone. See Jesus honoring his mom and dad, obeying them, submitting to them. I wish I would have done that as a kid. Man, I was a punk. Mom and dad, you're probably watching. I'm sorry I gave you so much grief. Thank God what Jesus did as a teenager covered everything that I did as a teenager. Thank God that everything that Jesus did as a teenager covers everything that I do as an adult. The humility of Jesus, the humility that Jesus shows us is remarkable. The eternal Son of God submits to his mom and dad. And that's why the favor of God was upon him. The grace of God favor was upon him. And so here's the application for us, okay? Jesus has this favor because he's obedient. And in the gospel now, God's favor rests upon us. That's the application from this pack uh, for us. In the incarnation, Jesus comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to people like us. Jerry Bridges said, living by grace, by favor, instead of by works, means you are free from the performance treadmill. It means God has already given you an A when you deserved an F. He's already given you a full day's pay, even though you may have worked only one hour. It means you don't have to perform certain spiritual disciplines to earn God's approval. Jesus Christ has already done that for you. You are loved and accepted by God through the merit of Jesus, and you are blessed by God through the merit of Jesus. Nothing you ever do will cause him to love you any more or any less. He loves you strictly by his grace given to you through Jesus. And so here's the gospel. For those of us who are trusting in Christ, God has given us an A. We know we flunked. We know we got an F. God's given us straight A's. You get the report card. If you're trusting in Christ and you get the report card from God, straight A's. And that means when you stand before Jesus on that day and you get the proverbial report card, it'll be straight A's. And you'll know why. I will know why. Not because of us. It's all due to grace, to God's favor. It's all because Jesus always obeyed And it's all because Jesus never sinned, and he credits that to us. 
we will know that we failed. We will be fully aware for all eternity that we only got straight A's because of grace. And we'll just be amazed and awestruck and we'll just worship. And we'll wake up on the 10,000th day and say, pinch me, man, is this real? It will seem too good to be true, but it will be true. Christmas is about grace. It's about the kindness of God to people like us who don't deserve a lick of his kindness. Christmas is about getting the best gift that we don't deserve, namely God's favor. Christmas is about Jesus proclaiming this to you in the incarnation. God's favor, God's welcome, God's delight, God's acceptance, God's smile, God's affection rests on you. Enjoy it, y'all. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about. Just enjoying God's favor. And enjoying it so much, you want to share it with other people. You want to share it with other Christians and remind them. You want to share it with your coworkers, your neighbors, fellow students, the barista at Starbucks. You just want to tell them, this is the year of the Lord's favor. Will you believe? That's what this table is about today. God's favor. God's standing with arms wide open and saying, come here, let me give you a hug. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's no way to calculate the riches of that angelic declaration, peace to those on whom his favor rests. It is more than we could ever hope for. It's more than we could imagine, more than we could dream up, and yet it is the reality for which we deeply long, and it is our reality. You have made your peace with us through Jesus We are right now your beloved children of grace, daughters and sons upon whom your full and permanent favor rests. We are those in whom you delight with joy unremitting and love everlasting. So if unredeemed angels were in awe of such good news, how much more should we, Father, be staggered and astonished and humbled and grateful and liberated and transformed. And so we ask you today on the second Sunday of Advent by the power of your Holy Spirit, please inflame our hearts and stir up our affections. And please, we're begging, restore to us the joy of so great a salvation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.